This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Buddhist Studies podcast. I'm Tori Montrose, one of the hosts of the channel. My guest today is the is Dr. Scott Mitchell, the Reverend Yoshitaka Tamai, Professor of Jodo Shinshu Buddhist Studies and Dean of Students and Faculty Affairs at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'll have you start by just sharing a little bit about your personal background, your, your bio, where you grew up, and, and how you came to Buddhist Studies in the first place. Sure. So uh, I grew up um, mostly in uh, the Los Angeles area and the, the suburban wasteland, so to speak, um, and uh, sort of grew up in a, um, a religious household. Uh, but my, my mom really encouraged us to sort of ask questions and, and, and do our own sort of seeking. And so as a result, I, I think I became one of those pretentious uh teenagers who was always thinking about philosophical things. And um, that led me to get uh, an undergraduate degree in philosophy and religion. And um, I I think that I was always interested more in the religious questions about how to live a good life and and all those sorts of things, which led me more and more toward the the sort of uh, Buddhist end of things. Um, I was also really interested in um, uh, sort of uh, making connections between different religious traditions and interreligious dialogue and comparative studies and that sort of thing, which um, I think sort of naturally led to um, the Graduate Theological Union here in Berkeley, which is where I did my my graduate work. Um, but interestingly enough, as soon as I arrived at the GTU, I discovered Jodo Shinshu Buddhism and the Institute of Buddhist Studies and um, became much more interested in the history of, a, of Buddhism in the United States and outside Asia. Um, and completely lost all interest in <laughs> sort of the interreligious side of things. Um, and that's uh, uh, sort of how I ended up being interested in this topic. Great. So then your first um, experience in, in Berkeley was coming for the purposes of, of studying at the Graduate Theological Union? Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. That's that's interesting. I didn't know that about you. Um, so... Can you say more about how you came to this particular project, um, how your scholarship has sort of developed throughout your career to lead you to this to this work? Yeah, I you know, a lot of my graduate work was actually on the Japanese American experience. Um, uh, I didn't, you know, and, and in particular, the, the Berkeley Buddhist Temple, which is sort of at the heart of the book. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the historical work, a lot of the theoretical work around the history of, of Japanese immigration to the United States, you know, the, the long history, including internment and the post-war years, all of that stuff sort of featured in my, in my graduate work for a long time. Um, 
uh, but I think that I was uh, more interested in more contemporary issues for a long time. Um, but then the the sort of the, the real impetus for this book is actually the result of an experience I had with um, David Matsumoto. David Matsumoto is a um, teacher here at the IBS. He's also currently the president of the IBS. But uh, this experience we had was... Um, gosh, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago before I was dean and he was president. We were both just members of the faculty and we had this opportunity to co-teach a class on Jodo Shinshu and Buddhist modernity. Um, and he sort of focused more on the Japan side. I focused more on the American side. And it was a really interesting, um, really fun class. Um, and I can't remember if he was still um, the resident minister at the Berkeley Temple, but he at one point was. And so he has this this pretty deep connection to um, the Berkeley Temple. And toward the end of the semester, he took us on a tour of the temple and, you know, showed us around and told us all these stories about how the, the new building was built. And a lot of this history I had already, I already known um, through my, my graduate work and early um early scholarship. <clears throat> but at the end of that tour, he took us into the social hall where he had laid out um, a near complete collection of the Berkeley Bousset on, on these, you know, long tables. And prior to that moment, I was aware of the Bousset. I knew, I knew a lot of this history. I, um, but I, I, I think that was probably the first time that I had um, encountered a physical copy of this magazine. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure, you know, coming into contact with a historical artifact with an actual physical object is, is a really interesting experience. It's much different than just reading about history when you come into um, even, you know, something as mundane as a, <laughs> as a magazine. Um, you know, I remember, you know, you can tell that the magazine was like mimeographed or, um, you know, you know, had uh, an address label on it for one of the temple members and the, um, the staples were getting rusty, that kind of thing. Um, so there's this like physicality to this object um, that was that was really sort of powerful. Um, and that that sort of initially sparked my interest. Um, and over the next couple of years, uh, David and I ended up working uh, closely together on a lot of institutional stuff. Um, but he had also come into um, uh, he had he had received a, a collection of materials from the Imamuras. Um, and he kept saying, somebody should do work on this project. Somebody should do work on this project. You should do work on this project. It took me a while. <laughs> but eventually I realized that, um, you know, he was sort of entrusting a lot of this material with me. Um, and I felt like this is, this is the, this is the direction I should take my research in. Oh, great. And how fitting too. I noticed that you dedicate the book to him, um, in the spirit that you, you know, are calling for in this book about kind of, um, you know, uh, the co-generative uh, process of scholarship or the, the hope of moving more in that direction. That was nice to see. Um, I, I, I wonder too, did you have any previous um, love for magazines uh, like growing up? Is that something that, you know, it had a, like a broader interest or was it something kind of special about about just the, you know, the timing and, and the presentation of it all that struck you? Huh. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, yeah, probably. I mean, I'm a I'm a Gen X kid. Right. That's what I was wondering. Like <laughs> these days, I don't know how many people are yeah, are encountering yeah. them, but I there definitely were... remember magazines growing up. I don't know if I would say I was particularly interested in them. That this also sparks um, a memory of Thomas Tweed's work in um, American Encounters with Buddhism, where he talks about how important magazines were um, for culture in general in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, 
but yeah, I think it was probably the the, the confluence of, of 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 coming into contact with the magazine itself, and then also uh, the influence from uh, from David that uh, sort of solidified uh, my interest. Plus, the 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 collection is. Um, you know, it's not a huge collection, but there's a lot of material in there. Um, and I could, you know, over over the first couple of years of doing research on it, I could see this project going in a, a dozen different directions. Um, that, that there's just so much in there that could be relevant for a lot of different fields of study. Yeah, I, I that's, um, I want to kind of build off of that because in your introduction, you talk about, um, you know, your decision to, st- to structure the book um, and the narrative that you're telling in a kind of unconventional way. You don't want to move in a linear fashion. Um, you move back and backward and forward through time and across different geographies as you move around the Pacific. Um, <clears throat> and also this idea of looking at the same pieces through different disciplinary perspectives. So I wonder if you can share more about um, your thoughts on how you structure the narrative of this book and and why that was important to you to do? Um, yeah, sort of, you know, once I decided this was the research I wanted to do, um, you know, I did that thing where every time I had an opportunity to present, you know, my work at a, at a conference or an invited lecture, this 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 is the topic that I chose. I would, even if it didn't quite make sense, <laughs> I would try to find a way to, to talk about it, which meant that I kept going back to the Bousset over and over again. Um, and pretty early on, I could tell, you know, there's there's some obvious things <clears throat> in the material. You know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, rhetoric around Buddhist modernism, which is pretty, um, pretty uh, straight, uh, pretty front center. Um, obviously, it's a it's a magazine produced by a Japanese American community, so there's there's that angle as well. Then you find these beat poets in there, Alan Watts, Gary Snyder. There's that angle, you know. So you can be, you know, as you go deeper into the material, you can see lots of different ways to approach it. Um, and because of that, I, you know, it, I remember giving a, a presentation in Kyoto actually early on in my research where I tried to sort of create a, a chronology of the Bousset and say, you know, there's this period and then it sort of develops into this period and then it sort of changes into this period. And that's that's sort of true. But over time, I just found that like, that was not a particularly useful way of, of conceptualizing the material, um, especially the more connections I found and the more uh, both both connections across different volumes, but connections to other um, networks and other persons um, and and things that aren't in that are sort of vaguely referenced in the Bousset, but aren't actually in the in, in the Bousset, right? So, uh, DT Suzuki, for example, is referenced quite frequently in the Bousset, but he doesn't have any published writings um, in the Bousset, and so that's you know, there's obviously a connection between him and the community. What is that connection? So then I end up sort of going beyond the magazine itself and looking at other other um, uh, other archives, other histories, to try to get a sense of what that means. Um, and so when I was dealing with all of this material and trying to put together a, a historical narrative, yeah, it was really difficult to think through how to, you know, do I just do a straight, you know, you know, first this happened, then that happened, so on and so forth. And over time, that just made less and less sense to me. Um, and, you know, I think I rearranged the chapters several times <laughs> until I realized, oh, the, the reason I'm struggling with this is because I'm trying to, to force these ideas that I have into a sort of conventional historical narrative narrative and um, letting go of that sort of gave me that opportunity to be a bit more more free and um, creative, I guess. 
<clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's helpful to know about sort of how this how this evolved through through various presentations. And um, I was wondering, I I I was curious about um, the core one of the, your core ideas that it's in the title of your book, <laughs> The Making of American Buddhism. Was this intended as a provocative title? And why do you think this term American Buddhism is such a difficult one for scholars to reckon with? Um, well, I'll be I'll be honest that the um, the, the original title for this book was going to be Mid Century Modern Buddhism, which I thought was really clever. It uh, is. I love that <laughs> one too. <laughs> that can be the sequel. <laughs> but my um, my editors at Oxford Press said um, if I titled the book that, nobody would ever find it because they. Would be- <laughs> looking for the mid-century modern architectural movement and, and, and so on and so forth. And they're very clear about um, keywords and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we had a lengthy email exchange <laughs> with lots of different ideas for titles and subtitles and so on and so forth. And as you, as you know, a lot of times academic books have, you know, a catchy title and then, you know, a word salad subtitle of all the keywords that you're trying to throw at it. And eventually they said, you know, you don't need a subtitle. Um, and, I can't remember exactly who um, who came up with the title. If it was uh, the editor or me, or sort of a joint <laughs> a joint process. Um, but immediately, I was like, "Oh yes, that's 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 the title." And y- yes, in some ways, it is provocative. You know, I, I think it's really interesting that it plays off of David McMahon's really well known book, "The Making of Buddhist Modernism," um, and. I, I want I, I liked both the invocation of making and American Buddhism, right? So the making part um, to me evokes the actual building of these networks, the actual building of these communities, the actual making of stuff, which um, I feel like isn't isn't really highlighted in a lot of Buddhist study scholarship. A lot of Buddhist study scholarship focuses on the text or on rituals, um, on straight histories and, and, you know, the idea of, of actually building things and the significance of that is I think worth, um, worth our attention. Um, and then the second part, you know, American Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of scholars don't really know what to do with American Buddhism or how to define it or, you know, what its boundaries are, so to speak. Um, but to go back to the, the subject of the book, the, um, the Nisei Buddhists, you know, they're very clear and very explicit about claiming to be American Buddhists. Um, and to, you know, sort of foreground that perspective and that rhetoric, I think is really important. You know, academics and scholars can, can argue and debate, you know, (laughs) all they want about these terms, but here's this community, you know, 70 years ago who very clearly said we are American Buddhists. And what are the implications of that? If we take that seriously, uh, for the, the larger history of, of the tradition. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's, um, it's helpful, uh, to, to hear it put that way. I, yeah, I read it, especially there were, you know, certain sections throughout the book where you're engaging with these, you know, these, the, the challenges that scholars have um, created <laughs> and grappled with around what to categorize as American Buddhism. And so I, I wondered if the, if there was a kind of effort to make some scholars do a double take um, about you know what the what what this book might be about and what it might contain, um, and the way in which you know you're very clearly advocating for um, a uh, a uh, corrective to the scholarship and in, in its ex- 
previous exclusion of of uh, Japanese Americans and Jodo Shinshu Buddhism. So about this question of the subject, so you mentioned the subject of your book are the Nisei Buddhists. Just for the, you know, this is a broader Buddhist studies podcast. So if you can just explain that term. And then um, I wanted to also ask you about, you know, your your decision to focus a lot on the Imamuras, Kanmo and Jane Imamura. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak to your selection of, of both that, um, the couple that you um, you argue uh, in your first chapter that their partnership and time in Berkeley would prove invaluable for the development of American Buddhism and that the Berkeley Busse, this magazine, played a crucial role. So I wonder if you could both explain what, what, Nise, what we mean by Nisei and then how these um, kind of paradigmatic figures uh, f- factor into that. Yeah, so um, the, in, in sort of standard um, genealogical terms, the, the Japanese uh, population of the U.S. is usually divided into or, or you know, uh, periodized, I guess you could say. Issei are um, uh, first generation um, immigrants. Those are the folks who, who first arrived um, from Japan. They were born in Japan and, and emigrated to the United States. The Nisei then are their children. Um, and then um, this is just counting Issei as first generation, <laughs> Nisei as second generation, Sansei as third generation, and so on. The, the Nisei generation itself is a little bit... Um, a little bit hard to to capture, I think, um, but it's also a really pivotal generation. If you look at um, uh, sort of American immigration history more generally, there's a, a generally accepted assumption that you know immigrants come, they're you know they're they're marginalized in, in, in different ways. Their children become American-born citizens, and there's a tendency for the second generation to you know try to be as American as possible. Later generations sometimes have a sort of return to the country of their um, ancestral homeland, so to speak. <clears throat> um, but for the Japanese-American population, the Nisei are also the ones who are um, incarcerated during World War II. So in addition to all of the um, the usual um, marginalization and, and, and institutionalized racism that we see around immigration, immigrant populations, you also have this you know big traumatic event um, right in the middle of um, of their sort of coming of age. Um, the the further complication for the Nisei generation is uh, a lot of folks will say that a, a Nisei is somebody who has just one parent who's an Issei, um, and the Issei began emigrating to the United States in the late 1800s and continued until, you know, 1920 or something. So it's a pretty big chunk of time. And as a result, a lot of the Nisei um, cover a large age, a uh, large uh, uh, age group. Um, there were a lot of Nisei who were incarcerated um, in during World War II who were, you know, already in their 20s. Many of them also served in the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, but there were also Nisei who were born in the camps. So that's a pretty big, you know, a pretty big group of people, um, which necessarily means you're going to have a lot of internal diversity, right? A lot of different experiences, a lot of different uh, perspectives on things, which is part of the interesting thing as a historian is is, is to look at a, a population or a subject and say, wow, there's there's actually a lot going on here, and and how do we how do we um, how do we try to grapple with it and understand it? Um, you know, as a as a historian or as an outsider, um, so the Imamoras play a pretty important role here as well. Jane um, uh, was born in uh, here in California in, in uh, at a central central California farming town. Um, uh, Kanmo is a little bit older than she was, and he was actually born in Hawaii. 
Um, and he was, uh, not only did he grow up in Hawaii, but he also spent some time uh, in his uh, younger years in uh, Japan with his family's ancestral temple. Um, and so he already has sort of a, oh, and, and I think rather importantly, <laughs> Kanmo's father is Yemyo Imamura, who was um, one of the first uh, sort of bishops or overseers of the, the Jodo Shinshu community in the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, Yemyo Imamura was um, a very interesting person, very charismatic, very interested in both um, supporting the Japanese uh, population on the on the island on the islands, but also um, being what he called a, a cosmopolitan, being somebody who wanted to, you know, share Buddhism with everybody, um, wanted to bring people in. He was well known for bringing in uh, non-Japanese to the community and that sort of thing. So I think a lot of that that attitude was um, passed on to his son Kanmo who um, was assigned to the Berkeley Temple um, in 1941, um, right before Pearl Harbor. Um, and, you know, almost immediately he and Jane are, are, are incarcerated. Um, and then after the war, they come back and they just, you know, devote themselves to this community and do um, an enormous amount of labor to, to build up this community in a lot of different ways. Um, so you, that that passage you read, where I said, you know, their work is really invaluable. You know, these are these these are these characters that we don't hear about very much. But once you discover them, it's hard to miss them. <laughs> you know, uh, in the book, I talk about this other book that was written back in the eighties called "How the Swans Came to the Lake." The Imamura, you know, uh, Reverend Imamura shows up um, in that book, which is, um, you know not about Japanese Americans at all. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, and so, so, and, and the Imamoras got very, very well connected to lots of different people um, during their um, sort of heyday. Eventually um, they moved to Hawaii. Imamura becomes the bishop out in Hawaii for a long time. He moved back to California. So they're traveling around a lot in these networks at mid-century. Um, so they just become these really important figures that, um, you know, uh, like I said, once you once you notice them, it's like oh, they're sort of everywhere. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, we don't we don't talk about that that kind of contribution in the same way that we talk about Suzuki's contributions, for example, or or other figures of the same time. Sure. Yeah. Since we're talking about um, about uh, Nisei just a little bit ago, I want to continue on with that a little bit about um, what you frame in chapter three as the Nisei problem. Or I mean, I, th I don't think that's your original rendering. I think that's a, a, a broad, something that was talked about openly at the time. But you you treat it in chapter three, um, and you talk about you know your desire to locate Buddhism within this racial project of constructing a Japanese identity, Japanese American identity. Um, you say po uh, quote both in response to and as a balm for the effects of racial trauma. And you use these um, use the metaphor of a bridge, but also this idea of contributions. I wonder if you could if you could talk a little bit about about that um, the way you were thinking about that because I think one of the ways this book is really unique is is it treats race very explicitly, <laughs> um, and this is a topic that a lot of Buddhist studies doesn't get go anywhere near. Um, and so I think one of the larger contributions of this project is to try to understand where Buddhism can factor into, as you say, this racial project of constructing a Japanese American identity. So I wonder if you could speak to that process for you. 
Yeah, you know, as, as, as I was saying before, as I was doing the research on the boost, I could, you know, see how you could approach it from a lot of different angles, um, from the, the Buddhist modernism perspective and so on. Um, and in, in particular, in the, the pre-war volume, so the, the boost got started in, in 1939, and it was a biannual publication at that point. And they, they published it up until um, uh, 1942, right before they, uh, the community was incarcerated. Um, but in particularly in those volumes, there's um, a lot of, of really clear, you know, very explicit conversations around what is often called the Nisei problem. Um, and in, in, in doing some more secondary research, you know, Ichihiro Ama, uh, Azuma, pardon me, has a book called um, Between Two Empires, which focuses more on the Issei generation. And, and he talks about how the, the Issei also were worried about the, the Nisei problem. And this goes back to, um, you know, again, this sort of intergenerational dynamics where, you know, when the, the first generation came, you know, they're coming out of a sort of late Meiji um, sort of rising imperialistic uh, Japanese sort of context. There's a lot of Japanese um, nationalism going on. And there's, a, you know, some of this is being transferred onto, you know, the, the way they're raising their children up until um you know the um the exclusion acts where you know it's, it's pretty clear oh our children are going to be americans <laughs> so we we need to we need to raise good children and the, the the problem from the point of view of the issei is you know we don't want our children to behave badly because that's going to reflect poorly on the community as a whole and, we, and we're you know we're under um threat from you know institutionalized racist uh systems um so to see that same sort of rhetoric show up in the Buse, but being expressed by the children, by the Nisei, was really interesting to me. Um, and what I find even more interesting is the way in which Buddhism then becomes part of that equation, where it's not just a, um, a sort of discourse about racism and discrimination, but it's also a discourse about how do we how do we solve this problem, right? How do we become good Americans? How do we overcome diversity uh, um, uh, uh, discrimination? How do we overcome, uh, you know, the, these problems that we're having? Um, and Buddhism factors into that in a, in, a, in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, um, in the pre-war period, you know, there's, there's a, a sense almost of, of like defeatism, right where the nisei are like we're being discriminated against but everybody gets discriminated against there's nothing we can do about it <laughs> which is you know sort of yeah. um, heartbreaking right yeah um <clears throat> but there's these essays where they'll then say you know in spite of that what we need to do is we need to find community and the best place to find community is in the buddhist church right so buddhism then becomes this way to um sort of create solidarity becomes this way to sort of you know uh make make this difficult situation a little bit more livable um which is which is really an interesting uh take on things right <laughs> um in the post-war boost there's a there's a pretty big shift where they stop talking about um the nisei problem as such but they continue to talk about the importance of buddhism um, and I, I don't, I don't really talk about this much in the book, but I, I would, I would speculate that I think part, a lot of this has to do with the experience of incarceration and the experience of, of service in the U.S. military, where, you know, Nisei are 
having this really in, the, the the generation as a whole is having this really interesting experience uh, interesting that's a poor choice of words this really um bizarre experience i guess you could say of um being accepted as americans of being asked to be of service to the u.s military project you know doing all of these things in service of of their country and at the same time their families are are locked up and incarcerated because they're japanese right so there's that that really weird disconnect that's going on. Um, and within that context, uh, Nisei start expressing this way of saying, you know, we are Americans, but we're not just like everybody else. And one of the ways that we're not like everybody else is because we're Buddhists. So let's double down on that. Let's really just be proud of the fact that we're Buddhists and also recognize that we can, we can give Buddhism to, uh, to America, which, um, you know, which I find really interesting because the implication there is that, you know, Buddhism is something America needs. And if Buddhism, if, if America needs something, then America must have a problem. <laughs> right, so, right. So very subtly, I think there's a critique mm-hmm. there um, coming out of that place of being on the receiving end of discrimination of saying, you know, America is not perfect and, and we have the solution. You know, yeah. here it is. We're good mm-hmm. Americans. We can give it to you. <laughs> so yeah. really and I think you, you yeah. talk about it as kind of like holding them account, holding America accountable to its own ideals of religious pluralism, right? And doing that by doubling down, as you say, on on their Buddhist identity. Um, and that's, I, you know, you um, reference uh, Duncan Williams' work, American Sutra, and there's such a nice pairing because of um, the ways in which this narrative that you trace um, in in the Berkeley uh, Busse and in this uh, community, like you say, about um, thinking about ways to use Buddhism as a tool of resilience. Um, and you can see that how that feeds into um, the incarceration experience that's detailed really um, meaningfully in, in Williams's work. And I think what's, um, you know, what was so interesting to read, um, a, you know, as the kind of the second chapter of Berkeley Busse's life, of, of its publication life, to see sort of the ways in which that gets trans, transformed after the incarceration experience was really um, made for good reading. Um, also in that section, you, you introduce this idea of um, kind of the gendered labor factor in, in all of this and the ways in which um, even when we do tend to look at um, some of uh, these, uh, uh, these efforts by American, by, you know, various Buddhist communities in America, we tend to ignore uh, gendered labor um, and the role that that plays in the creation of what you what you refer to as religious infrastructure, um, you say, quote, the very possibility of American Buddhism is contingent upon the domestic, upon acts of hospitality, in short, upon the labor of women. So could you say more about how um, this idea of gendered labor has influenced your your thinking about about this project? Um, yeah, and, and really, I owe uh, all of this to, to Jessica Starling's work um, in um, Guardians of the Buddha's Home. Um, so, so, you know, to go back to the Nisei problem, it was pretty obvious to me as I was doing the research that the Nisei problem was always gendered masculine, right? The, the Nisei would say, you know, the problem is that Nisei can't get jobs and they can't get wives. And it's like, well... <laughs> 
<laughs> at least they aren't all men. So, you know, um, and so part part of my my research was just sort of trying to figure out what you know what are the women doing? What's their experience? What's their perspective? Um, and fortunately, um, we have memoirs by uh, Jane E. Memora and her mother, um, which are are really good, <laughs> really good sources of information for what's going on um, at the temple within the community more broadly. Um, and Jane, in her memoir, um, you know, she takes on the label of Bomori, which is what is usually referred to as the temple, the the, the priest's wife at a temple in Japan. Um, and, you know, Jessica Starling's book, you know, um, uh, makes it clear that, you know, the, te- the word Bomori does not translate, you know, temple wife. It's the guardian of the Buddha's home, um, which is an important thing to keep in mind, because what happens within a, 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 a Japanese temple community is that the, the the priest usually does the house calls, right? The priest is usually out there, <clears throat> not at the temple every day, but then people will come to the temple and the, the, the spouse is there to sort of take care of things and welcome visitors and sort of run, run the business of a religious community, right? Um, <clears throat> and so Jane Imamora in her memoir has a section where she talks about being a Bomori um, and she lists all of the things that she has to do. And it's like, that's like two full-time jobs, if not three. <laughs> you know, in addition to being the mother of four children. Um, and so it's hard to, to you know, to, to read that and not think, you know, what's what's going on there, right? What's going on there in terms of the the amount of, of, of work that she's doing and how is that contributing to um, this, uh, the, the maintenance of this temple? Um, and, and this actually became one of the more exciting research, um, topics for me because I, I really wanted to think carefully and deeply about this question of labor and what, what we value and what we don't value, um, which, um, has, you know, been one of those things as a, as an academic, that's always been sort of in the back of my mind, but I didn't quite have the, the right you know, academic language <laughs> for it. And, and fortunately, I was invited into a reading group with Jessica Starling and uh, Paula Colata and Gwendolyn Gilson, who uh, really gave me just so many resources. And, and our conversations were so generative in terms of, of thinking through these issues. And, that, and that's eventually where I settled, this idea of, you know, there's the, the sort of affective emotional labor component that is really important to making anything possible um, that we don't usually value. We value other kinds of labor, right? Um, and then from there, we just sort of go down that rabbit hole of, well, there's all kinds of labor <laughs> and a lot of it is gendered um, and a lot of it is ex- explicitly in service to um, the temple and the community and without it, you know, what what doesn't happen? And, and I think that, um, you know, I think this is this this is again one of those things that once you see it, it becomes really obvious, right? Um, I've seen it in my own experience, just you know, in Buddhist communities in my own life. You know, it's like you know, there's there's the people in the kitchen who are doing all the the, the cooking and the cleaning, and you know, and then there's the, the the big and quote unquote important people who are giving the lectures and talks and at the front of the temple, and it's like, well, without those people that we don't see, 
that that other component doesn't happen. Um, and I think the same is, you know, becomes obvious in, in our academic lives too, right? There's all kinds of people that make the university function <laughs> that we don't usually see. And so I really wanted to, to bring our attention back to that, um, to not just talk about the, the magazine itself or the, the names on the bylines, but what's going on behind the scenes, what else is happening um, that's making this possible. And, and part of this too, it was definitely gendered, um, but also, um, uh, but also gendered masculine, right? So, in some of the archival material I worked with, um, uh, Reverend uh, Conway Memora kept uh, letters, and it was—it's really clear that he did uh, an enormous amount of fundraising. Um, he would write letters to, you know, the the Rockefeller Foundation and to you know all these these major donors, and he would send them copies of the Bousset and say, "Look at this amazing stuff that we're doing in Berkeley. Can you help support, you know, the spread of of Buddhism and religion and philosophy and art in America?" Um, you know, that's just as important as writing the essays and, and everything else because if you don't have the money, <laughs> then nothing else happens. So you know, finding those kinds of things became um, became really exciting for me. Yeah, and I I think this idea about uh, religious infrastructure that you engage with in both in chapter three, but then more in chapter four, talking about all the ways that um, that religions and to which American Buddhism is no exception survive and thrive is in this infrastructure um, that you know takes so many components and so little of which gets the attention of of scholars. So. Um, I, I'm almost pained to bring up DT Suzuki because he always manages to get into every conversation <laughs> that he's even remotely a part of. But in your section in, the, in chapter four on DT Suzuki, you point out the ways in which his connections to American Jodoshin Buddhism is often overlooked. Um, I had this experience, a minor version of this experience, when I was. Um, studying Japanese language in Japan. And I, part of the language course, we had to give a little five minute uh, Japanese speech. And I, so I wrote mine about uh, how Suzuki uh, actually has these Pure Land connections. And um, the audience was like reti- Japanese retirees. <laughs> Just, I don't know, I don't know why they wanted to come and hear us practice our Japanese. But afterwards they asked, and one, uh, a gentleman came up to me and said, I'm so confused by your talk. Is this like a language issue? Um, uh, Suzuki was Zen, you know, just like so, just unequivocally. And I had to, I didn't, I didn't know how, you know, in our brief interaction to, <laughs> to bring, you know, bring in all the things that I was uncovering. But so anyway, if you could speak to, you know, this question of that you raise about what if the Okamuras and the Imamuras had not been a part of DT Suzuki's story, where would he be? If you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I agree. Like, you know, I had to talk about Suzuki. (laughs) (laughs) Um, he's, he's a part of the story. Um, and, and actually a really important part of the story because he does, um, if, if we're, if we're approaching his life story rather than from his intellectual work, but approaching his life story as just a, a person, um, then these other, um, these other things become revealed. Right. <clears throat> um, you know, so, uh, in, in, um, Janie Memora's memoir, for example, she mentions how, <clears throat> pardon me, she, uh, picked up Suzuki from the airport 
and you know um, has this comment about how this is pre freeway days, and you know imagine how it's difficult to get to the airport. <laughs> now <clears throat> but that that also reminded me of my my first experience going to japan um you know where uh i found it <clears throat> actually really not that difficult to to navigate you know train stations and airports because everything is in you know many different languages and, and so on and so forth and then i flew back home to san francisco and was overwhelmed by how horribly difficult it must be <laughs> uh, you know everything's in english occasionally signs are in chinese but not often where's the bart station right like coming into sfo which is a major international airport on the pacific rim is actually really disorienting and really difficult and i can only imagine how much more difficult it would have been um, in the 1950s for uh, a japanese man who by all accounts you know his english was was okay right um, <clears throat> and so this reminds me of something that um, uh, another scholar, an Asian American scholar named Rudaka Busto wrote about Senzaki, who um, was also a student of uh, Shaku Soen um, and also came to the United States early in the 20th century and um, had a much different experience than Suzuki did um, as sort of a Japanese immigrant, um, you know, having to, to work odd jobs to, to make a living. He was also incarcerated during the war, unlike Suzuki, who was back in Japan. Um, and so sort of putting those two historical figures into conversation, um, yeah, there was just sort of a, a intellectual playfulness that I that I got onto of of just sort of wondering, yeah, what would have happened to Suzuki if he didn't have this community that was already here to help support him, which is a, a much different experience than Senzaki had in the early part of the 20th century when the the community wasn't quite as developed and was still brand new and so on. You know, here's this you know, network of dozens of temples, uh, you know, across the country and lots of, you know, big and small communities and people who are willing to, um, you know, pick him up from the airport and, um, you know, take him around and manage his money and, and all these kinds of things. You know, Suzuki in the post-war period is already a pretty well-known, well-established scholar. So I'm sure he would have had some sort of impact on the development of, of you know, modern Buddhism. Um, but it would have been different, right? It would have been a different experience. It would have been a different history. Um, and I think when, as researchers, when we can sort of um, enter into that speculative space, that's when we can start thinking, oh, who did pick him up <laughs> from the airport? How did he get around? And, you know, again, this is where um, Jane Iwamura, um, her scholarship in virtual Orientalism comes um, it was really important to me, you know, um, because she talks about Okamura and how Okamura was um, such an important figure and really marginalized in sort of the, the media representations of um, Suzuki's life at the time. Um, and so to, to find those little bits of history and, and lift them up and, and, and sort of play with them um, with that what if question was um, became really important to me. Great. Um, in chapter five, you really dive into this idea of genre to con and uh, as an idea to continue to challenge the ideas of what counts as Buddhist, quote unquote, in art and literature, and the results uh, of which change who gets canonized and who gets excluded. You put this emphasis on the who rather than the what, um, and how that in turn affects the discipline of Buddhist studies. Um, and then earlier in chapter two, you're also looking at this question 
in a slightly different way when you're when you're looking at Buddhist modernism and the um, the scholarly exclusion of Jodo Shinshu in the conversation of Buddhist modernism and in, in, in the scholarship. Um, so I wonder if you could um, you know elaborate on on either one of those pieces uh, or the chapters together. To me, they seem. Um, maybe when you were rearranging the chapters, as you said in the beginning, maybe they at one point were, were next to each other, but they have a resonance to me. Um, I think the results of which have these really profound impacts on our on our field. So if you could elaborate on that. Um, yeah, you, you, I'll start by saying that um, in some ways, this is uh, the, the direct result of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I hoped to do in my research was to visit more um, locations and more archives, um, but COVID made that impossible, um, which forced me to uh, to do a bit more theorizing than I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think originally I was going to you know, do what probably would have been a much more boring book (laughs) (laughs) of, you know, just sort of listing names and connections Mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing. Um, But without access to certain archives, um, I, you know, went into this other sort of more theoretical perspective. And and, and, in previous scholarship I've done on um, Buddhism and media, this question of genre comes up quite frequently. You know, what, what is a genre, you know, for, for literature or art? And I wanted to use that sort of as a metaphor for the way in which disciplinary boundaries get codified as well, right? Um, you know, what what is it that historians do? What is it that Buddhist study scholars do? What, are, what you know, what are the, the subjects of our work? What are the boundaries? You know, what, you know, and, and how are those things sort of determined? Um, so to be able to to sort of play with those ideas in a, in a sort of more theoretical uh, sense while being rooted within this particular case study was, um, was, was pretty fun actually. (laughs) Um, And, and yeah, I think that um, there's definitely uh, connections between chapters two and five in terms of the way in which um, just through time and repetition and, you know, repeated um, references to certain people, we tend to assume that, you know, Buddhism looks a certain way or that religion looks a certain way or that, you know, these are sort of the boundaries of American religion versus, you know, Asian religion, the West, the East, and all of these other kinds of um, uh, dichotomies or binaries that, you know, serves a purpose for in, our, in our academic work, absolutely, but they're also arbitrary, right? They're also <laughs> things that we sort of make up in order to make sense of the world. And when we do that, that to me raises the question of what are we, what are we seeing and what are we not seeing? Um, and so to go back to gendered labor, for example, um, you know, uh, Jesse Starling in her book has this great line about how the focus in Buddhist studies is always on the text. And even when you're talking about a ritual, you're thinking about the text that's being uh, recited, right? The text that's being invoked in that ritual. Um, and what if we, instead of looking at the text, looked at something else? And then, you know, that's that's sort of her entree into talking about a different kind of um, religious experience um, or the experience of religion, I guess I should say. <laughs> um, And so, yeah, uh, you know, um, I think that, you know, and and, and again, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, you know, 
the part of the, the challenge of this work was to, to recognize that there's a lot going on in the Bousset and approaching it from these different um, uh, disciplinary angles, you know, critical race theory, Asian American studies, American religion, Buddha studies, so on and so forth. Um, each one of those different disciplines or methodologies raises different questions. Um, and and ultimately, if, if you if you do a project like this and you're asking different questions of the same material, eventually you do that sort of meta uh, uh, analysis of, well, do, do these disciplines even make sense? <laughs> or, you know, and, and then we can sort of uh, uh, start to think more deeply about how it is that we that we do what we do as scholars and, and why we try to sort of stay in our lanes or why we try to um, uh, police the borders, so to speak, of our of our disciplines. Which um, maybe that's the next project. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, let's see in the in the conclusion, you talk about how in Buddhist studies the metaphor of the lineage is privileged over the equally Buddhist metaphor of a web or a network. Um, so I, I think in your saying, maybe that's the next project. I'm wondering if you could say more about your hopes for the future of Buddhist studies and, and how you feel that this book, you know, it could serve as kind of a, a guide, a guidepost for that. Um, yeah, you know, uh, it's, it, I, you know, I think that it's, um, I, I talk a little bit about this, uh, you know, in the, the epilogue to the book about writing a book during a pandemic and, and the, the last few years of, um, our collective lives have been uh, interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but and I, and I think that's important for a number of reasons. For now, what I'll say is, you know, uh, I, I've seen a lot of really interesting conversations happening within Buddhist studies as a as a field or as a discipline over the last few years. Um, a lot of shifts, I think, that are happening in part because of the pandemic or because of political. Um, uh, issues that are happening, particularly in the United States. Um, but I think also that there's just a, a, a deeper awareness or willingness on the part of scholars to approach the material from different perspectives um, and to really sort of question our sort of shared received history in terms of, of how the discipline was uh, formed and, and where it's going. Um, I hope that my book contributes to that conversation in some ways. Um, your reference to the lineage versus webs, I think, is, is, a, is a good case in point. Um, I, you know, uh, to use a metaphor, any kind of metaphor that we're going to use in our scholarship is, is always going to be limited. Um, and I, in, in the abstract, I don't think that there's anything wrong with a lineage per se, but I think we also have to acknowledge that a lineage necessarily includes and excludes. That's what a lineage is for, <laughs> right? Um, it's to authorize or authenticate a tradition. Um, and is as a, as a scholarly project, is that the best, the best metaphor that we can come up with, or can we come up with some other metaphors? Um, and I, I feel as though I was heading in that direction, but I, I haven't settled on a better metaphor. <laughs> um, a web, I think, makes sense. I think that um, uh, I've had interesting conversations with with colleagues about, you know, um, the, the different people who who play into forming us as scholars. Right? You know, I can I can say I studied under Richard Payne, and he studied under um, Lou Lancaster, and so I'm sort of in that lineage. Um, but I also studied with Judith Burling, who's a, you know, interreligious, a China, Chinese scholar. Um, I studied with Duncan Williams, you know, I've, you know, I've learned from 
uh, so many different people in in so many different ways, and the, and those are just the scholars, right? We're not even talking about the 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 labor of my my family or my friends that um, you know certainly goes into it, and so yeah, that's that's the question. What other kinds of metaphors might we come up with, um, drawing on our own experiences, in order to help us better understand our subjects, which you know, to go back to Suzuki, you know, he's also a person. <laughs> he's, you know, this great intellectual figure and, and we can debate, you know, all of that stuff, but he's also a human being. And, and what kind of metaphors might we come up with that might help us better understand his experience as a person in addition to an academic or a scholar or, or whatever the case might be? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought in the epilogue. Um, I almost wanted to start with my question about the epilogue at the beginning, because um you really provide meaningful personal and historical context for the writing of this book. And to an extent, I wish that every book included a section that talked about the author's process of creating the book um, as a way of humanizing the process, as you're saying, like we're humans, we're not just scholars. Um, you, but also in this section, you weave in this idea of utopian thinking um, in part because of the personal and historical context that you write about um, in the epilogue. And then this exercise of asking what if is a through line throughout, right? Um, I think you've already answered this question, but maybe I can just get you to say why you were inspired to conclude the book in this way. Um, maybe you can s say it for us again or, or just share some other thoughts on it, because it's a really interesting part of the book. Thanks. I'm 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 really glad you're asking about that. Um, you know, I I wanted to start the book with Kashiwagi's um, narrative, and early in the process of writing it, I wanted the book to um, have some sort of feel of the time period that I'm talking about. You know, um, 1950s. You know beat counterculture kind of stuff. Um, and for a long time, I was thinking that the, I would then end with an epilogue that would um, that would invoke some more of that of that feeling, but I wasn't sure what that would be. Um, I was, uh, inspired in part by Julian Thomas's book, um, faking liberties. He has an epilogue in his book, which is, um, uh, really powerful. Um, and so, uh, that sort of, I felt like that gave me sort of permission to, <laughs> to think more creatively about how I could, um, end the book. And then of course, you know, writing it during a, a pretty tumultuous time, um, both uh, globally and personally, was um, was 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 really interesting um, and difficult. It was it was a challenge, absolutely. Um, um, but I but then the, the the final piece of this was, you know, there's that cliche of of those who don't learn from history repeat it, right? Um, and for for years, uh, you know, ever since I became aware of this particular moment in history, I've always been. Um, sort of in the back of my mind, sort of uh, amazed that this even happened, that, you know, you have people with really different ideas about Buddhism in a, in, a, in a same place together, right? At the same time, Alan Watts's essays in the Busay are, are sometimes really, really insulting to the people who are hosting him, and yet they keep bringing him back. <laughs> Somehow they become friends. And I keep I kept sort of thinking about how there's this, you know, really interesting um, community with lots of different perspectives, and 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 they and they're somehow okay, um, and how difficult it seems like 
it seems like impossible for us to recreate that in the present, right? In, in our present political climate when everybody hates each other. And <laughs> um, so, so what can we learn from, uh, what can we learn from this history and, and apply into our present moment? And I don't, I don't know if I have a, a, a clear answer on that, but um, Melissa Curley's work on utopian thinking has always been really, really interesting. And to go back to this idea of labor, I feel like a lot of times um when we're sort of overwhelmed by the the enormity of the the problems that we that we are facing in the world right now, there's this this belief or this uh, not belief but this um, tendency to just sort of externalize it and be like, oh, I have no control over it, and you know, um, I can't make it perfect, so you know, I'm just going to give up. Um, but but each of us in our own little tiny worlds has a lot of control and power that we probably don't realize. Um, and if we were able to sort of shift our thinking a little bit, could we create, you know, not a perfect utopia, but at least a little bit better of a world. <laughs> um, and maybe that was the, um, maybe that's just the, the, the lesson that I, I was hoping to draw from this history and then apply it into our present moment. And um, yeah. And, and I wanted to, to end the book on a, on that note, I guess. <laughs> Great. Well, let's hope that uh, Jolien and you have started a trend. Now there's at least two. I'm sure there's more, but two that, <laughs> that we can talk about now. Hopefully this begins a trend because I think it um, helps, you know, um, speak directly to, to the audience. So I've taken up a lot of your time and um, I, I want to end with the final question, which is um, where are you going next? What what um, ideas are you having? What are you if you're working on something now, if you could share a little bit about that or what you plan to work on next? Um, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Um, I'm not working on anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, sort of uh, taking a taking a breather. The, this yeah. book was um, uh, a lot of work and uh, the last few years have been really um, a challenge. I'm at a place uh, professionally where I don't have to jump to the next thing. Um, but having these conversations has been um, really exciting and, and generative. And um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about um, writing more uh, of this, uh, of the epilogue kind of stuff, stuff that can be um, more approachable for a wider audience and have more applicability to um, what's happening in the world. Great. Well, Scott, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much. Bye.